Now, tonight, uh, as I said, we're in Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter in our Bibles, and you'll find that on page 1041 in the church Bibles. Revelation chapter 22, page 1041. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who has ears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, 
God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Thank you, Robin. Let me add my welcome this evening. Thank you for joining us this Easter Sunday evening. One of the things the Bible does is give us a reality check. It's a great exposer of fake news. And the reality check tonight, the the kind of lie that this passage is challenging, a lie that we tell ourselves, a lie that others tell us, the lie is this. God does not want people to experience the good life. Have you heard that lie? Ever been tempted to believe that lie? God does not want people to experience the good life. It's a very old lie. First turns up three pages, three chapters into the Bible. The devil said it to Adam and Eve. God is stingy. He's a spoil sport. He's mean. He's restrictive. He's anti-life. He's not generous. He's a fun killer. He's always trying to kind of reduce us to a shadow of what we could be. If humanity could just get rid of God, just push his rule further away from us, well, then we'd really have the good life. Then we'd really thrive. I think that's one of the things that stops people becoming Christians, that particular lie. Maybe you're here tonight, you're looking in on Christian things and seeing what we do, what we believe, and maybe that's the thing for you. Actually, if I were to become a Christian, to put my trust in Jesus, to to start letting God tell me what to do, well, would that be good for me? Or is God some kind of stingy spoil sport, just wants to make life miserable? think that stops people becoming Christians. It's also something that Christians sometimes battle with, something we're tempted to believe sometimes. So some of you will know that um, my wife, Jessie, has suffered for a number of years with a kind of chronic illness. Um, It's ongoing. You may also know that uh, soon around the time that that began, um, we were told after some surgery she she had that we probably wouldn't be able to have children. Um, It turned out not to be true, but for a number of years, we grieved that, really grieved it. Um, and when those two things happened alongside each other, we were tempted to believe this lie, that God is not good. How can he be if he withholds good gifts? How can he be if he doesn't take away things that are really hard, that are making life hard right now? And perhaps you're here struggling with something as a Christian. It could be anything, couldn't it? It could be, could be singleness, That can be a real battle sometimes. It could be marriage, faithfulness in a difficult marriage. It could be mental health battles. It could be trust in a really difficult, desperate work situation. It could be serious ill health of all types. And you might be thinking the same thing. Is God really good? In Passion for Life last week, we heard that Jesus offers life to the full. But is that really right? Does God really deliver? when it comes to the good life. Well, the start of the Bible flagged up that issue. 
the first lie we hear in the Bible is that. And the end of the Bible should put it to rest once and for all. This passage in front of us, well, really, chapter 21 and 22, are showing us that God is good and will deliver the good life for those who trust him. In lots of ways, the Bible's been proving that again and again through the story. And lots of times, Israel thought they could do better with God, or thought if they hedged their bets, a bit of God and a bit of the other gods the world around us trust in, maybe that would be the best thing. Again and again, God proves, no, there is no permanent good life away from me, and I will deliver the good life for my people. This book of Revelation is written to churches facing all kinds of struggles, struggling to keep going when their circumstances seemed hard. And this passage says, God does deliver. It gives us a vision into the future, into the end of the world. It shows us how human history is going to end up. And as we heard this morning, back in chapter 21, verse 4, if you're there, page uh, 1041, if you've closed it, chapter 21, verse 4, we heard the verse earlier from Robin. It doesn't get much better than this. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is a picture of a perfect world. It is the world we all want to live in. And then again in our passage, chapter 21, verses 1 to 5, we see lots of different symbols of life. The river of life. The tree of life. A vision of perfection. There's healing of the nations. There's no more war. There's no more night. It's a picture of the good life. The world we want. The kind of life we want. But here's the key point, and this is my first point tonight, and in lots of ways the biggest point, and you'll see an outline on the handout if you want it, but this point one is the big one, really. We need to notice where these blessings come from in chapter 22. Just have a look. 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This river of life, this abundant, wonderful life, the life we all want, flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. So here's the point tonight, point one. The good life will flow from God and the Lamb reigning at the center. The good life will flow from God and the Lamb reigning at the center. And actually, that's been the message all the way through 21 and 22. And so back in 21 verse 4, that that verse I read, just before that we're told, verse 3, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's why the tears are being wiped away. That's why death has disappeared. That's why there's no suffering. Because God is now right there, physically present with his people. We'll have a look at 21 verse 22, just above our passage, where John says, I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Or have a look at um, uh, 21 verse, hang on, 23. Why has the city no need of sun or moon to shine on it? Well, 
because the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. So you never need to close the gates for security purposes. You never have a kind of horrible dark winter's night like Edinburgh because God is there. He's reigning right at the center. The good life flows from God and the Lamb at the center. Back in our passage, we've seen verses 1 and 2, it flows right out of the throne. But look on to verse 3. So there will no longer be anything accursed. Why? Well, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They'll see his face. Or verse 5. Night will be no more. They'll need no light of lamp or sun. Why? For the Lord God will be their light and they'll reign forever and ever. Do you see the point again and again and again? The Lord, the Lamb on the throne, that's what brings the good life. That's what brings the perfect world. God at the center reigning. So, let's go back to that lie that I opened with. If you're sometimes tempted that Maybe by putting a bit of distance between yourself and the God of the Bible, because he's anti-life, he's a bit of a spoil sport. If you think that that's the way to the good life, you could not be more wrong. There are lots of ways we do that, aren't there? There are even ways you can do it as a Christian. Kind of, uh, you, you try and serve God, but you also try and serve money. You kind of worship God on a Sunday, but you also dabble with sin or a relationship which you know isn't godly. You don't side with Jesus publicly or, or keep distance from church, from serving God. It's all a kind of, I know I need God, but not too much. Don't want too much of God's rule in my life. Keep him at arm's distance because he is a spoil sport, anti-life, not generous. Sometimes when people have even seen the resurrection evidence, seen the historical reliability of Jesus rising from the dead, sometimes they still don't trust in him because they're worried he'll spoil life. Or Revelation 21, 22 says, actually, that moment when God reestablishes his rule permanently on the earth, when he's right in the center of this world, his throne in the center, that's when the good life flows. I know it doesn't feel like it at the moment, but it will be really obvious at the end of human history that actually the good life is found with God's throne in the center. The first readers of Revelation needed to hear that because they were suffering things like martyrdom and battles with, with all sorts of challenges as churches. It didn't look like they were getting the good life for following Jesus. But on the final day, those will be the people around the throne experiencing eternal life of a quality and quantity never seen before. That's the big point. We're now going to delve into some of the details of verses 1 to 5 to to get a feel for how good that good life really is. Um, And I'm going to give us one more tip for reading Revelation. We have one this morning, which was, uh, this is apocalyptic literature. Um, which is a a good tip. It it says that the pictures we see are symbolic. This isn't kind of a literal photograph of the new creation. It's lots of symbols to to lift our hearts and minds uh, to get a feel for it. That's one tip for reading the end of Revelation. My other tip is that these two chapters operate like a mixtape or a mashup 
I don't know if you know what a mashup is, uh, a kind of mega mix. I actually had a CD I was going to bring, but I couldn't find it. I've got a CD in my, in my collection. It's one of the most embarrassing CDs in my collection. Um, it's by a 90s kind of dance group called Clock. Now, I don't know if many here know that. You might know them from songs like um, Axel F or Woomph. There it is. Uh, I don't actually know if they got as far as Scotland. Um, they weren't very good. But anyway, the, the last track of their greatest hits um, is a 20-minute track which mixes together all the other songs. I mean, imagine that, 20 minutes of them. Um, it turns out all their songs are very similar, so it's actually quite hard, quite easy to, to stick them all together. Um, Revelation 21 and 22 are just like that. They're, they're the kind of mega mix of the Bible's prophecies. They mash together lots and lots and lots of previous symbols and images. And we had it earlier with temples and gates and thousands and twelves. Lots of pictures from earlier in the Bible getting brought together. If you prefer classical music, um, I'm sure there's an equivalent thing. Um, that the final piece of a, a set of pieces brings together the themes and riffs that you've heard before. So anyway, that's a tip for Revelation, which means if you want to get better at reading Revelation 21 and 22, we need to get more familiar with the Old Testament, because lots of it is drawn from there. So let's dive in to a few of these details. Um, First, verses 1 and 2, we get symbols, pictures of life, the river of life, the tree of life. Now, does the tree of life ring any Old Testament bells? Hopefully it does. Genesis, back in Genesis 2 and 3, um, there was a, a tree of life, this picture of, of um, eternal life. Uh, and rivers were running through the Garden of Eden. Fertility, abundance, good food, everything you need. And of course, it wasn't just temporary sustenance. It wasn't just you're going to be able to grow vegetables, Adam and Eve. It was God is giving you immortality. It's on offer. Life eternal, life that isn't ended by death and mourning and dust. And now, here again, at the end of history, the tree of life has reappeared. It's an amazing thing, actually, it's reappeared. Because Genesis 3, God said, I don't want human beings to eat from this tree anymore. Now they've rebelled against me. The words are this, You are dust, and to dust you will return. In case Adam reaches out his hand and takes from the tree of life and eats and lives forever, therefore the Lord sent him out of the Garden of Eden. And he placed, listen to this, he placed the cherubim, that's angelic bouncers, the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. But now the tree of life is accessible. It's right there, right in the middle of this city, a huge deal. When, when previously eternal life was banned from us, the good life was banned from us. Well, now, because the Lamb has come, Jesus Christ has come, because of that first Easter, well, now there is the tree of life and a river of life watering it. The curtain has been torn. The way is open. Did you know the curtain in the temple had cherubim on it? with flaming swords. The bouncers have stepped aside because Jesus has died. Access to the tree of life. 
So eternal life is, is back there, abundant eternal life. Secondly, total international peace is going on here. Um, so I don't know if you noticed anything strange about the tree of life in verse 2. It's had a kind of upgrade since Genesis. Uh, if you know Genesis, it was just a tree, one tree. Um, here, it, it seems to be tree, or tree on both sides of the river. It's more like an orchard of life. Uh, and it yields fruit every month. It's got 12 kinds of fruit. And, and these leaves are for the healing of the nations. The tree of life has had an upgrade. And we might be thinking, well, what do I do with that? How do we make sense of that? Well, Revelation 21 and 22 are a mixtape, a mega mix of prophecies. So you could go back to the Old Testament and find all three of those things, trees on either side of the river of life, uh, leaves for the healing of nations. You can find them in Ezekiel 47. We won't go back there. You can read it if you like. It's an amazing picture where a river of life flows out and, and gives abundant life wherever it goes. And where does it flow from in Ezekiel? It flows from God's temple. It flows right out from God's dwelling place. Do you see the point? It's the same big point again. God's reign is right at the center, and the good life flows out from him. Eternal life for every individual. International peace, the healing of the nations. It is the world we all want. I don't know how you feel opening a news app or looking in a newspaper at the moment. I find it pretty depressing. Wars, rumors of wars, increasing international tension. That will end when God reestablishes his throne at the center of this world. The healing of the nations, the good life. Now, we don't have as much time for verses 3 to 5. There are more amazing details in there. They, they show, again, how good this eternal life with God in the center will be. Um, just look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. So the curse will be finished. What was the curse? Well, Genesis 3, God cursed humanity for disobeying him. And living in a cursed world, I, I probably don't now need to tell you this if you're old enough, living in a cursed world is grim. In fact, I know a number of us in the church family are feeling the effects just at the moment acutely of the curse, the grief of death and bereavement. To dust you will return. The difficulties and indignities of aging, the frustrations and futility of work, battles with sickness and suffering, the pain of struggling to bear children, the effects of sin, our own and others. We live in a world under a curse, subjected to decay, trapped by death, destined for dust. It, it's a grim thing. But 22 verse 3 says, there will be a day when the curse is no more. Nothing accursed will be there. Why? Well, now God has moved his throne right into the center. So no more curse and a perfect intimacy as well. Verse 4, they will see his face. God's people, his servants, will worship him and see his face. Real intimacy 
with our maker. Again, it's an amazing thing if you knew the rest of the Bible, because all the way through the Bible, no one can see God's face. Moses wasn't allowed to see God's face. People who see God's face, the risk is they'll be incinerated by the purity of it. And yet here, intimacy with our maker, a face-to-face relationship, and the security of being marked as his, the name on our foreheads. And then verse 5, night will be no more, no need for light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they'll reign forever and ever, just the way it was supposed to be, Adam and Eve ruling over creation. Well, everything will be put right, the good life regained with God at the center. It's quite a picture. If we had a whole sermon just on these verses, we'd spend another 20 minutes and there'd be plenty to talk about. Extraordinary picture, eternal life, international peace, no more suffering, intimacy with the God who sometimes feels so far away and ruling the world just as we were made to. You see, the good life will flow from the throne of God and the Lamb. So, what's your reaction? What's your reaction to that? I think it's very easy to say, well, that sounds lovely. Nice Bible pictures. But it's just not the real world. We thought about this this morning. I mean, this is surely just never going to happen. Middle East conflict is it's just irreconcilable. It's not fixable. Death just can't be solved. We've been trying for millennia. It's just a load of wishful thinking. But then, as if to anticipate the doubters, verse 6 says this. It reminds us of who's speaking. Have a look, verse 6 of 22. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. 22 verse 6. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what, what must soon take place. We might feel like no one can predict the future with certainty. And with human beings, that is indeed true. I mean, we still don't know what Brexit is quite going to look like. And I think it's quite soon that it happens. But actually God, if you look at how in verse 13, God is described. He's described as the Alpha and the Omega. That is the A and the Z. The beginning and the end. He's beyond time, sits above it, can see the whole picture. And so, of course, he can tell us, precisely where the world is heading. And actually, he's been doing that, says verse 6, all the way through the Bible, through his prophets. That's why Revelation 22 is a mega mix. It's pulling together all these different prophecies that God has made. And notice that he's showing his servants what must soon take place. This is our second point, much briefer. This will happen soon, When Jesus returns to judge every person, this good life with God's throne right at the center of this world will happen soon when Jesus returns to judge every person. So if you look at verse 7 and verse 12, twice we're told by Jesus that he's coming back soon. You see, this perfect world It's not miles down the divine to-do list. I've got a few to-do lists on my computer. Um, One of them is headed, Someday Ideas. 
I'll let you into a secret that I've never done anything <laughs> from that list. It's just kind of blue sky thinking. This would be nice one day, maybe. Maybe we'll get to it once we've done all the other things. No, 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 it's not like that. This is the very next thing on the divine agenda. The next thing in salvation history. So if, you, if you've got a list from the Old Testament prophets and from Jesus of all the things that need to happen before the end of the world, you'd have that the Messiah needs to come, and he did, Christmas. You'd have that the Messiah needs to suffer and die, and he did, Good Friday. You'd have that the Messiah needs to suffer, die, and then somehow be, be alive again, Resurrection Day, Easter Day. Uh, then you'd have, as we've been hearing in our John series in the evening, that the, the Messiah must send his Holy Spirit, and that's what's happening at the moment. Jesus is at the Father's right hand and has sent his Holy Spirit so the message of Jesus can spread around the world. That's happening at the moment. And the only other thing left is Jesus returns and sorts out the world. It's the only thing left. I've been ticking them off. Good Friday, Easter, sending of the Spirit. The very next thing is Jesus' return. You can tell it's soon, actually, just from this passage. Verse 10, um, this angel says, says to John, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. For the time is near. You might feel like that's, that's a pretty confusing and unimportant detail. Who cares whether the book's sealed or unsealed? But actually, if we've got our Old Testament heads on, this is a really striking thing. Often in the Old Testament, when God predicts the future, and it's a long way off, he says, seal up this book. Keep it in a cupboard somewhere safe. <laughs> so Isaiah, you know that famous promise... Um, uh, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, for unto us a child is born. That Christmas promise. When Isaiah was given that, he'd just been told, make sure you seal up the words of this prophecy. 700 years later, Jesus turns up. Or Daniel, when he's given prophecy about the, the big four next kind of international powers on uh, the global stage, he's told, seal up this promisey, pro- prophecy, for it will happen many days from now. But this one, you don't seal this one. Why don't you seal it? Verse 10. For the time is near. It's really striking. This perfect world is it's just around the corner. Don't stick this in a cupboard. <laughs> don't file revelation away as a kind of fairly irrelevant one day we'll get to it. No, this is right now, this news. And that's why Jesus, verse 7, says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Or, sorry, verse 7. Yeah, verse 12, Behold, I'm coming soon. Now we might say, hang on, hang on, 2,000 years does not sound like soon to us. But uh, 2 Peter says that's because God's patient. He's giving people t- time to turn to Jesus. And he does work in millennia. But actually, it's the very next thing on his to-do list. And it could happen any time. This could be our last meeting as Chalmers Church. Verse 12, I'm coming soon. And then what's he going to do, verse 12, when he comes? Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. So Jesus says he'll return soon to judge every human being, dead and alive. 
He's going to bring in a perfect world, but the moment before he does, he will judge every human being. In fact, that's how he's going to bring in a perfect world. I think there are two possible reactions to that. One is to scoff at the idea, judging every single human being. I mean, come on. There's no way Jesus is going to call out dead people, like decomposed dead people, all the humans who've ever lived. There's no way he's going to call them out by name and call them to account. It's actually quite hard to say that on Easter Day because Jesus came back out out of the grave. It would have been even harder to say that last Sunday evening. I don't know if you were here. Last Sunday evening, we heard the story of Lazarus, a man who was beginning to decompose because he'd been dead four days. And Jesus said his name, Lazarus, come out. And to the absolute astonishment of everyone around, he did. He came out. And the witnesses of Lazarus' resurrection and Jesus' resurrection died for what they'd seen. They wouldn't have gained anything from that kind of fake news. So the kind of, this can't possibly happen. There's no way there'll be a judgment day because there can't be a resurrection. Well, Easter puts the lie to that. But I think there's another possible reaction, which is to think this might be true, but actually it's really worrying Just look at verse 12 again. I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. Jesus is coming to give people what they deserve, to give me what I deserve, and you. And that's actually quite a worrying thought, if you you pause and think about it. I don't know how you think you'd fare if, if all your words and deeds and thoughts and desires were displayed in a public courtroom for all to see. I mean, most of us don't even let our closest friends know half of what we're thinking or doing. So how will we do before the the perfect burning purity of our creator as we try to explain to him how we treated him and others he's made? It's actually a terrifying thought, verse 12. Which is why verse 14 is such a relief. Such a relief, that's the next verse after this bit. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. This is our final point. Only those washed by Jesus the Lamb get access to the good life. You see, judged by our own merits, we all deserve the curse. That's why we all die, actually, because we all deserve it. All of us wear dirty robes compared to God's moral purity. We don't actually deserve the good life. But repeatedly through the book of Revelation, we keep being told there is a way to wash your robes. Yes, your record is filthy. Yes, if even those closest to you knew some of the things you've done and thought and said and felt. They'd be shocked. But just look how strong that language is in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Used to be we had no right. Angelic bouncers to stop us getting anywhere near eternal life. 
But now, those who've washed their clothes have the right to the tree of life and they're waved through the gates. Come on in. This is for you. Whereas verse 15, others are stuck outside. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That list starts with things that are quite shocking, kind of really unclean things, dogs, sorcerers. It just ends with people who lie, who are in the habit of lying. And none of us can say we've always told the truth. The reality is, by God's standards, we all are on the outside, unless we wash our clothes. How do we wash our clothes? Well, Revelation keeps saying, you can wash your clothes in the blood of the Lamb. Good Friday, Jesus' death was a death in our place to provide cleansing, washing. That's why you can look at God's face in the new creation, because you're washed. Did you notice when we were going through those different pictures earlier, that every time the lamb is mentioned, it's not just God on the throne, the lamb with him. Just look back, uh, back to 21, verse uh, 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Or verse 23, city needs no sun or moon, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 22.1, this water of life flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And again, in uh, verse 3 of our passage, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. Again and again, not just God's throne will be central, but the Lamb will be alongside it, meaning people like us can be there. The good life flows from God and the Lamb reigning at the center See, without Good Friday, the doors to the new creation would be shut. Jesus could enter, and then the doors would be shut. But wonderfully, he died so we could be clean enough to be waved through. VIP, come on in. Left to myself, I would ruin the new world with my sin. Wonderfully, it's been washed clean. So then, how do we respond to that amazing picture? Well, I think verses 17 and 20 give us two, two things the church should be saying. If we get this picture, if we get where the future is headed, there are two things we should be saying as a church. Verse 17, the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that's the church, say this. We say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Because the lamb has paid the price, entry to this perfect world is actually free. It is free. Anyone who trusts in Jesus can be there, can experience the good life. And as a church, that's the message we keep saying until Jesus returns. Come, 
come and taste this. Come and, come and get guaranteed eternal life through Jesus. Come and have the right to be in a perfect eternal world. And notice from verses 18 and 19 that we're not allowed to change that message. I heard this week a significant church leader denying the reality of hell. That's an absolute travesty. It is a denial of verses 18 and 19. Revelation is very clear. There's only two destinations. The perfect good life with God and the Lamb or what's described as a lake of fire burning with sulfur. Church leaders, church members have no right to change the message. We offer free forgiveness, but we don't pretend that the alternative is just neutral. You just die and there's nothing. That's the invitation for you tonight. If you're, you are here looking in, God wants to give you the good life. Coming to Jesus is not going to ruin your life. It's going to make your life for eternity. And that's what we as a church family need to keep saying. That's one reaction, verse 17. And then the other reaction, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. And we, the church, say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The church should always have two cries on our lips. An invitation to the world. Come and join us. It's free. And a prayer to Jesus. Come back. We're hurting. That's what these churches needed to keep going in Revelation. Come back, Lord Jesus, because we're not experiencing the good life now. Come and bring your throne to the center of this world. But in the meantime, it's a free offer for anyone to join us. Let me pray. Father, we are sorry that we sometimes fall for the lie that you are not generous, that you are not good, that you are not committed to providing the good life to people you've made. We're so sorry for that. We're sorry when there's so much evidence of your kindness and generosity. Forgive us for that, Lord, and please help us to trust. Pray particularly for those in our church family going through really difficult circumstances at the moment. Things that on the face of it might suggest that you're absent or you don't care, that you're not committed to them. We pray for them, Lord. Please help them to keep trusting that there will come a day where they stand in glory and see you face to face and know that you are for them and you are good and you are generous beyond our wildest dreams. And Father, for any here who don't know you, we pray that your spirit would be at work to convince them that this is true and that you are good for them. That you would forgive them as you've forgiven us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.